Welcome to Theory for Turntables, the TFT podcast. Uh, I'm Matt, and that's not Ryan. It's Pete. Pete, hear my name. Take a good look. This could be the day. <laughs> oh, man. Great to see you this afternoon to talk about that album. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And, and, uh, and that, sitting next to Pete, is, uh, is Mark. Mark, I'll ride the wave where it takes me. That's my. We didn't. We didn't actually go. I was staying off the. Uh, I was staying off the the most famous lyrics. I, I should have said, you know, Pete Jeremy spoke in class today because we're doing Pearl Jam's Ten, uh, an album, their debut album from 1991, and one of like a treasure trove of remarkable albums that were released in that auspicious uh auspicious year and ryan and i having not done this podcast together for several weeks uh reunited last week to talk about um uh what did we talk about metallica to talk about metallica and uh we were just blown apart by the black album and uh so now uh ryan ryan is off is off recovering um you know, uh, uh, recovering. He's uh, in in rock and roll purgatory, uh, also known as Iceland. And the um, the uh, the crew from the main Overthinking It podcast is here. Uh, we're going to have a great time, even greater time than we usually have on the Overthinking It podcast because we can swear. Isn't that right, guys? Oh poop! It the S is on. <laughs> I really can't bring myself to do it. I don't know. It's, I just really trained myself over the years. It seems a, a harmless little. <laughs> is a harmless little. <laughs> harmless little fuck. There it is. I did it. I finally uncensored that line after 15 years of listening to it on the radio. Didn't uh, didn't um, uh, just don't say breast though in the next line when he gnashed his teeth and bit the recess lady's breast right because like we can have uh, dirty language or, or or I mean obscene language or deplorable violence in America but God forbid uh, anyone should mention any body parts or uh, or anything like that. Now I now this record was my jam uh, in the nineties. It was released in ninety one. Uh, according to this little blurb I'm looking at, it didn't chart until 1992. It wasn't an immediate success, but it did catapult Pearl Jam to fame like a, a, on a slow burn, right? It was a very slow, it was less a catapult because a catapult launches you at, at high velocity. Uh, and then as, you know, gravity traces its rainbow with your trajectory, um, you, you slow as you reach the, the apex of your journey and then come back down to earth. So the, um, you know, it it wasn't catapulted, but it it sort of what slow motion launched them to fame. <laughs> I'm not exactly sure what what metaphor to use, but it made Pearl Jam uh, one of the biggest bands in the country, uh, a status that they systematically destroyed after that. <laughs> <laughs> that they took we had apart to destroy the band in order to save it. <laughs> right? Yeah, in order to save the uh, in order to save the band's artistic uh, integrity, and 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 near as I can tell. Uh, from the kind of the the I have kept on it, it's mostly Eddie Vedder who has uh, uh, insisted, um, you know, that they not do stupid rock star stuff. I mean, some of the other, I think they're on board. There was a schism in the Ticketmaster days where they kind of took both sides, and the the guy who was on board who wanted Pearl Jam to be more corporate left the band. But uh, but yeah, I mean Eddie Vedder's the mouthpiece. But I think I think a couple of the others were also in front of Congress, right? Talking about Ticketmaster oh, yeah, talking and about, all that stuff. Sure, sure, sure. That's I mean that's true. And they they did a tour where they didn't play uh, Ticketmaster uh, venues at all, and so they had to find these these weird venues. I I remember because I was supposed to go to a Pearl Jam show. It was maybe what ninety four ninety five when when this happened. And I was supposed to go with my high school friend Danny to go see uh, Pearl Jam out in India. And at the last minute, my mother would not let me. Um, but, uh, because it was, you know, like a two hour and change drive from Los Angeles, but that venue, that like nothing little venue they found out beyond Palm Springs, like a two hour drive into the desert from Los Angeles now hosts Coachella. So they really were sort of ahead of the curve, (laughs) right. In terms of like identifying, uh, at least citing, uh, citing their, 
their concerts. Anyway, so we uh, this this is uh, I mean I, to me this is an incredible album. I remember it. I remember it well from. Um, from actually being a teenager because it was blowing up as my awareness of music was beginning, was kind of unfolding, right? Like as my awareness of uh, rock and like what was then current and as my uh, sort of MTV watching was, was growing in, in substance. Um, and this, the, you know, there was certainly a uh, very affecting video uh, for Jeremy um, which is, you know, which, uh, we'll put a link to that in the show notes for, for this. Do you, do you guys, was this a big one for you when you were? Oh yeah. yeah. Huge. Totally huge. Totally huge. Well, I mean, how Listen did you, what, ends, what was, count, what yeah. was your feeling? I mean, how, how did it come across and how did it uh, appear to you in those early days? So, so I didn't really grow up being very contemporary with music. I grew up listening to a lot of James Taylor and the Beach Boys, like my parents' music. And then around 1992, 1993, uh, my friends told me that if I wanted to learn everything about modern music, all I really had to do was watch the MTV Video Music Awards, and then I would pretty much learn everything that there was to know about contemporary music. And my copy of Pearl Jam 10 preceded that experience. So I, li- I watched that, and I was like, oh, it's Soul Asylum with the uh, Soundgarden. Oh, you know, it's like it's all these different acts that uh, that make up the sort of sphere, Alice in Chains and all this stuff of, of that era of rock and roll. But Pearl Jam was something, the, the album 10 was something I had before that. And so it was it was an angry, hard rock listening experience for me as, as, a, as a very young adolescent uh, that preceded a context in certain ways. Uh, and in that sense, I, I felt a certain private ownership of this thing that everyone else also felt a certain private ownership of, which is like kind of, I guess, what the sort of thing is about, right? I suppose. Yeah. Uh, I was definitely on Team Pearl Jam rather than Team Nirvana, if you want to separate those two people. Yeah, oh, yeah. so so was I. Um, yeah. And I oh, think, oh, the schism occurs. I there it is. <laughs> mm. there's, there's our hot take. Okay. I, ironically, ironically, because apparently uh, Kurt Cobain threw serious shade at Pearl Jam because of the epic use of guitar solos, which I, of course, adore being a guitar player myself. Um, no, actually, so my approach to this is that uh, this album uh, in particular is an odd bit of blind spot for me. Um, I, I actually loved uh, the follow-up 1993 album, um, uh, Pearl Jam's follow-up to this, uh, was Name Escapes Me, uh, Versus. Versus, right? Um, yeah. And uh, obviously, like, played Nirvana's Nevermind. Was that, the one, was, that, was, was that the one with the camel muzzle on the cover? Was it a camel? Is it a llama? Is an alpaca? That's a, that's a question for another episode of this podcast. Yep. Um, the one I, about I played that. Yeah. I played that to, to its death. To death, I played Nirvana, Nevermind, a whole bunch. But this album, oddly enough, like it, it just was not quite on my radar. I even like went on my um, my carefully curated iTunes MP3 collection and found that not a single Pearl Jam MP3 was on it. Mysteriously, wow. but here I am. I, I circled back to it eventually, and of course, I enjoy the music immensely. I'm I'm happy to talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so uh, give uh, Pearl Jam's Ten uh, a spin, whether it's uh, something you're not familiar with or whether it transports you back to your day. Days of adolescence, or however old you were when you uh, when you listened to it, and grunge was uh, grunge was ascendant. Um, by the way, this uh, right this actually predated the release of of Nirvana's Nevermind by about a month. You know, so that other like seminal text of of grunge popularization, um, Pearl Jam made it to market first with uh with 10 um give it a spin it's on all the streaming services uh you might even give it give it two spins we talk about uh, one of the things i want to talk about is what music is good for but i i have been running to 10 um all week while while uh, we've been preparing this episode, and let me tell you, it's good. There are some really good uh, tracks for pacing, uh, kind of a moderately paced run um, on uh, on ten. So uh, you know, run to the beat uh, and uh, or do whatever you do, and meet us here. We'll be back after this word from our commercial sponsor. Are you angsty, cold, surrounded by trees? Yes. Are you wearing a printed T-shirt and interested in layering? Oh, oh my God! I, I, I have so many flannels and I don't know what to do with them. Well, 
<laughs> well, you're in luck because Tartan Titanic is opening this week in the Pacific Northwest with used flannels from Silver Chair, Alice in Chains, Candlebox, uh, Soul Asylum. Uh, I almost said Matchbox 20. All your favorite flannel wearing bands have consigned their old garments to us, and we shall, as such, consign them to you. Uh, also, Lumberjacks, uh, there's professional gear for you, including safety vests, uh, as well as flannel shirts and uh, and pancake and forks and knives for banging on the table wow. whilst requesting pancakes. I know you have authentic Carhartt and Dickies flannels, but do you have fashionable grunge flannels as well? Uh, is that not a contradiction in terms? Mm. Grunge is anti-fashion. It's not concerned with quality. Most of these people were homeless at one point and lived under bridges. Oh, thank you, Tartan Titanic. I my my uh, lower arms are nude no more. And we're back. That's true. Yeah, I, I mean, even if they weren't strictly homeless, like a bunch of uh, the members of Pearl Jam, Nirvana, Kurt Cobain, I think, was homeless at one point, right? Like, uh, these, this is blue-collar people in a lot of cases. Not every case, but a lot of cases. Guys, I have a question. Mm-hmm. This, uh, this Pearl Jam, with their guitar solos, with their extended, uh, with their, you know, extended instrumental sections, with their um, weird outro of the album at the end of release that kind of, if you have the album on loop, uh, kind of just flows into the ambient intro for once so that this album is sort of an endless cycle that could just go on and on forever. With their instrumental, with, with all the song's origins as instrumental tracks that later right like after the point of their composition eddie vetter wrote uh some lyrics to and sort of moaned them along um these guys are they a jam band (laughs) that's a really interesting question because certainly they're more of a jam band than a lot because pearl jam I mean, yes, Kurt Cobain threw shade at them, but I, I do remember at some point in the historification of all of this, Pearl Jam being earmarked as sort of not really a grunge band by certain people, right? That uh, They were a little bit different, right, than a lot of the grunge bands. And, and listening to some of the other seminal albums of the era preparing for this, you really hear it, right? Uh, and, and you get that sense that... Um, you know, that uh, that Mike McCready, right, the lead guitarist for Pearl Jam, is more influenced by classic rock guitarists, right, like like Jimi Hendrix and Stevie Ray Vaughan than by, you know, Husker Du, right, and by, like, the Pixies, right, and that there's, there's more, that there's different musical influences, there's more virtuosity, as particularly on this album, than is generally appropriate on a grunge album, right? Um, although, yeah. so, so in that sense, I mean, Mark, you're the guitarist. So I don't know if you could characterize it better than I could. So this is how I would characterize it. It is uh, more metal than it is grunge, I think, <laughs> in, its, in its guitar work, at least. Um, it oddly reminded me a lot of the sound and guitar work of Guns N' Roses, um, which is squarely sort of more and uh, falls more on the 80s and metal side of the spectrum than, and it's, than certainly anything approaching grunge. Um, there is a, a, aside from the virtuosity and sort of the technical proficiency of how this is, uh, how, how the how the musicians play their instruments. There's also this uh, polished. I don't know. Polished is quite the right word, but but the reverb and the echo, the way that the sound is constructed, um, and and its uh, tendency towards treble and sounds that sort of cut through the mix, um, really are antithetic, antithetical to what we typically construe as grunge, which is a dirtier, muddier sound, which is something you will typically you will more associate with the guitar work of Alice in Chains and, and Nirvana, I think. And even if you go back and look at the Wikipedia article for grunge music, like one of the, the, the defining characteristics that it calls out, like pretty much straight off the bat, is that uh, not so much virtuosic guitar solos and yeah. more, more of a muddy sound. And so Pearl Jam is really cutting against the grain in that. But I think the vocal stylings of Eddie Vedder goes, uh, contributes a lot to what we uh, typically conceive of as grunge. And uh, that might be a different direction to, to, to talk about. I don't know. What do you guys think? Yeah, I mean, so one, one of the things that, that Ryan and I have talked about when we've talked about metal is that is the connection with sort of jam bandiness. 
um, jam bandiness and metal. And I think that the, that the sort of jam bandiness, what I, I always call, uh, I always say that something reminds me of the doors when it has a sort of aimless floating quality or when it has like a lot of reverb. And there are a lot of sort of down tempo, uh, not particularly driving instrumental sections of this record that sort of remind me, um, that sort of have that like laid back Dorsey vibe, uh, you know, um, to me. And that, that like, uh, that's a sort of jammy, uh, aspect to me. And then, and then the, uh, the kind of the, you know, the, the riff based, uh, song construction, right? The song structures that are based on that, where the kind of chord progressions and whatnot are, are really based on guitar riffs or they're sort of int- intimately kind of tied in to that is, uh, right, is a little bit, um, is a little bit jammy to me. But there's, there's a kind of, there's a, uh, there's an interesting lyrical development also, right? Like a couple weeks ago, we talked about, uh, uh, from two years before this record, we talked about the rise of, of Pretty Hate Machine. And I think that looking at the lyrics of Pretty Hate Machine and looking at the lyrics of 10, um, I think they provide an interesting contrast with one another, right? Because, uh, Trent Reznor was, um, was angry at capitalism, right? And like had a social critique, uh, you know, whatever you think of it, it was at least um, coherent uh, as a social critique, Um, was angry at some uh, unspecified, um, some unspecified lover who had wronged him uh, or something like that. Um, And, uh, uh, you know, I don't know. And, and also sort of, uh, angry at himself in a kind of, in a kind of, uh, solipsistic, uh, self-hating kind of way. Pearl Jam, um, Pearl Jam has a, a similar thing, but I feel like the social critique is, uh, a little less, a little less organized and kind of comes across more in mood than in, in sort of specific accusations about the sort of the, the Godfather society, um, you know, trifecta. Uh, it's more, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's more sort of, um, well, as we, as we, as I was talking with overthinking it writers, uh, about this, Jordan Stokes, uh, our colleague called it, fuck you, dad rock. Right. And because uh, there's this this uh, anger that's that's directed specifically at parents. And also it's sort of denuded of a lot of the self-hatred. Right. Like the self is mopey, but not not really sort of self annihilating. And we can sort of we can, I think, see that in in a lot of songs once we start to to examine examine that this is certainly an unhappy record uh do you guys feel like there is a there is a coherent social critique here or just a mood of kind of fuck you-ness i think there is something there's something ideological that's in it well certainly there's a lot of freudian psychodrama right and there's a there's, there's a lot of that but in terms if you want to think about the relationship we basically 10 by but Pearl Jam's 10 is the anti-hunger games, right? <laughs> we're, in, we're in like any – and it's because, it's A, it's hyper-masculine, right? That's the other thing is that there's very few women in this whole thing that aren't like de- de- denigrated by their, by their sexual body parts, right? Like, and I, I denigrate is the wrong word. Identified with regards to some sort of horror involving the like child male experience of their body parts, right? It's like most of the women in this album. Uh, so it's very masculine, right? It's very much about abuse and all this other stuff, but uh, the the it gets at any sort of social broad social critique through the perspective of there are individual people that you ought to care about and that we ought to have cared about and that we have not cared about and that this is a wrong right and it, that that the way to uh, to ameliorate this wrong would have been to have cared about them at the time that it was necessary which you know and the one the, the big song I'm thinking about what is is once right or also and also even flow right. Right, which are both about kind of the kind of people that you would see on the street or in the subway who have something very, very wrong with themselves, right? Uh, and you uh, and you know that at some point someone didn't care for them uh, in a way 
that they needed, uh, even if that included some sort of institutionalization and such. But it's like, uh, yeah, well, that's I, but but institutionalization isn't a good isn't a good example, which you hear in Why Go. Is it Why Go Home or is it just Why Go? Uh, but the one she scratches a letter into yeah. a wall made of stone. Uh, this you know young woman uh, and and she is she, but she's not really. It's not really important that she's a she. I mean, I think she's a she more because of the vulnerability inherent in being a she. How did I forget that the protagonist of that song was a she? To cross off everything I said about the album having no women in, I apologize. Yeah, yeah, it feels but, like but she's not. I mean, life. she's not. She's not really a full. She's not really a woman. She's a girl. Right. Mm, That's mm. and uh, right. Because she's not she doesn't have a full range of of adult capacities, Um, partly because of her age and partly because they've been been stunted by mistreatment by uh, those people who should be responsible uh, for her. And and also Jeremy, right, is in a sort of a similar situation um, where daddy didn't give attention uh, to the fact that mommy didn't. Uh, that mommy didn't care, right? So, so there is definitely like a specific anger directed at parents and at bad parenting, uh, at inattentive or neglectful, right? Parenting um, or uh, expedient parenting, right? That would sort of institutionalize and medicate uh, any sort of deviation from the average rather than uh, rather than sort of what accept or celebrate it or try to meet it on its own terms yeah. Um, somehow. Yeah. And, and it's well documented, right? That a lot, uh, not a lot, but a good portion of this does come from Eddie Vedder's personal experience, right? Where he found out late in life that his, what he thought was biological father was actually not his biological father and was um, deeply hurt by this experience. I now the rest of the, the, the Freudian psychodrama going on here and, and the sexuality, I don't think is from his, his lived experience, but uh, you know, that uh, alienation from parent, uh, it seems to be an important starting point for a lot of these lyrics and he, but he takes it to a different place for sure. It's interesting to think about social critiques of this sort. Uh, like there are social critiques that are about, uh, awareness, right? There's social critiques in art that are about sort of we need to shock people who are too comfortable out of their sense of comfort with their lives because if they become aware of the lives of people who are unlike themselves, then they'll be motivated to change things or the world will get better or at the very least the wrong of these people who have been ignored will have been made clear, right? And so there's like that kind of thing. But then there's the there's two sides of it on which this sort of this sort of Thing, which I think is kind of what Ten is doing. It, it puts it, you know, Eddie Vedder puts the speaker of the song in the shoes of a bunch of different people who are all suffering similar sorts of abuse at the hands of other people or institutions in the past or in the in the present. Um, then there's the critique that says, well, you can't authentically speak to the experience of a person who isn't you, and or you need to work harder to authentically represent the perspective of another person, right? Which is how I can forget that the protagonist of Why Go is female because it's still Eddie Vedder, right? Like talking about it, although he's talking about it from the third person, right? So so that's the other thing is that there's an alienation from that. But there's the sense of, can you speak authentically to the experience of people who aren't like yourself without making an effort to really translate? And then on the other side, there's the like, well, are you going to come up with actual systematic suggestions and ideas for how the world should be different from how it is, right? And is this an is this a different thing to do than trying to alert people to the notion that they aren't acting in an aware and conscientious manner towards their fellow human beings, right? Um, yeah, I, th- I, mean, I mean, hear I th- the breathing of wanting to jump in. I think that's well. I, I mean, I think that's right. Like one one thing I was thinking about a lot when I was listening to this record is um, how seriously ought we to take these sort of adolescent critiques of adult society, right? Because it's a staple of rock and roll music, right? Like "fuck you, mom," "fuck you, dad" is a staple of rock and roll music, and and it's it's sort of important. It's a like a it's a like a a necessary generational process, probably to sort of uh, to. Re- Reject and overflow the the authorities in order to become the authorities um, uh, yourself. And I mean, Pearl Jam is has been around long enough that they have turned from "fuck you, Dad Rock" to "Dad Rock," uh, and that that like 
you know that's that's um, that's the natural that's the natural order of the world. But does the adult world actually need to change or need to integrate or listen to uh, uh, need to listen to the the critique of like uh, the kind of uh, you know slightly shallow critique of uh, uh, daddy didn't give affection and the boy was something that mommy wouldn't wear because like daddy and mommy are people too, right? Uh, <laughs> daddy and mommy have. <laughs> <laughs> Daddy and mommy have hangups, right? Daddy and mommy have like limitations. Daddy and mommy have uh, a sort of emotional history that might make certain things very hard for them. And like, uh, you know, just just condemning them uh, because they are flawed and limited human pe- human people, you know, seems well, it seems adolescent to me, right? It seems like not. Uh, uh, it, it seems like it lacks a nuance and perspective. So uh, you know, I don't know. I, I don't know what to to think about it. You know, should. Should dad I mean, actually go fuck himself? <laughs> uh, we we cannot condone such activity on this on this podcast. Uh, but uh, I mean, this doesn't this has no obligation to speak to both both sides of this audience, right? The the young and the old. Uh, I mean, the, we have the cats in the cradle and the silver spoon for for the latter half, right? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, we can all go listen to Harry Chapin, right, or Bob Dylan, or something like that. We can go listen to those old boring artists. Quiet, quiet, mom. <laughs> <laughs> well, but I mean, but think about I think there's a, there's also a number of songs on the album where the speaker is it collectively also indicting themselves in the event, right? So I, I guess the the thing is that there there definitely is not perspective because there isn't separation from the present moment, right? Most of the songs, even like there, things are being recounted. There's there's things that are being recounted that happened in the past, but they're not being fleshed out all that much, and they're mostly sort of being told in in a sort of sense to try to give you the idea of what it is like to be there, rather than a sense of like why did this happen? And even even with Jeremy, it's kind of more about being at the various events that where where you could have figured something out, and it's about what is it like for all of us to regard this existence of this Jeremy. For you know, the speaker is a bully, right? Uh, who bullied Jeremy at some point? Uh, now, of course, this is a different time nowadays where we're like, oh, the bullies are very bad. This is from a time when bullying was the hegemonic discourse and was generally thought of to be unavoidable right and everyone experienced it uh as far as i know right but although some people tell me they didn't well, yeah, I I mean, just look at them with shock no i mean i well yeah i i probably sort of didn't but the the um the yeah it's it's an interesting thing that that happens in jeremy we can we can talk about jeremy because this, it was it was like the first single i think there was a um there was an mtv uh video that was super uh influential and, and ordering the pearl jam singles is tricky just because a lot of them were released in sort of bootlegs and then they kind of made their way around before the official single came out there were like two jeremy videos so it gets complicated but yeah anyway keep going sorry and this is well and this is like i sort of date you know this is uh this is a sort of preschool shooting school shooting song right like that was the plot of the uh that was the plot of the video and though it's not referenced i think specifically in the lyrics of the song it's clear that that's what it was that that's what it was about to the band and so it was a it was a kind of like dark premonition uh that turned out to be accurate in terms of the kind of you know the kinds of violence that um the the society would wreak on its on its most vulnerable members if uh if these what these tendencies were were left unchecked but it was um you know that's I, funny that's funny to say that because it's a, a relate it's based on a true story that it actually happened uh, right well two uh, instances two instances yeah two One, different uh, instances yeah, one one where the a kid that like in the uh, in the video like shoots himself, and the other one where there's more like he he shoots up other people. Well, he classroom. shoots up a room, and the other kid didn't actually kill anybody, right? Like he just shot up a, a like a, a, a classroom or something. Um, but but the the idea being that Pearl Jam told a story that wasn't being told, and then yes, pre- like in the future, that story became like a much bigger part of our culture, right? And if you're in the mood for it, you could try to find ways to blame them for it. But you you could also ironically blame MTV for forcing them not to show the gun, so that in the Jeremy video, it's not clear that Jeremy shoots himself. So a lot of people thought that Jeremy shot his class. 
classmates because uh. MTV wouldn't shoot the gun because of the sense show the gun in the video because of the sensors. And as such, maybe other copycats thought they were copying Jeremy by shooting others when, in fact, they would have been copying Jeremy more closely had they shot themselves. But that's not really the kind of improvement in outcomes that one looks for when looking at the past. But anyway, sorry, Matt, I interrupted you while you were talking about. No, I mean, it's, it's interesting. It's I mean, it's interesting to be sort of uh, it's interesting to be sort of well, actually, like my my. Um, association with this is based on a kind of vague set of impressions that I got as a child really too young to understand a lot of what was going on, right? Like, because I wasn't in peak rebellion years, right? Because peak rebellion years are what, like 13 to 17, 18, something like that, right? Like, uh, and I was a little young for that when this when this record came out and when the singles started playing on... um, playing on uh uh on MTV right like so so there's there's a couple things but i i remember you so- saying something Pete w- once that has um that has uh stuck with me a lot of the time that there was there was kind of an inflection point uh in the discourse about bullying when bullying became not something that needed to be stood up to and kind of a test of character for uh, for its victims, right? Like, you know, can they pick up a rock and throw it right back at the, you know, at the bully? At which point, um, uh, uh, at which point, you know, the bully is no longer a threat anymore. Uh, to, to bullies being something that need to be legislated, right? Legislated away from, um, uh, you know, from ever being experienced by kids. And that's not like, you know, clearly I remember picking on the boy seemed a harmless little fuck is the, the, uh, is the um, the lyric from the song, uh, but it goes on. But we unleashed a lion, gnashed his teeth, and bit the recess lady's breast. How could I forget? And so, like, it's clear that this this kid is sort of troubled by you know um, d- d- troubled by the bullying, certainly. But like, uh, not not everyone would necessarily bite the recess lady's breast. And by the way, the recess lady should be on top of this kind of thing, right? Like, there's there's a recess lady, but she's ineffectual. There's a recess lady, but she's worse than useless. Um, right, uh, yeah. she's a target for violence rather than rather than uh, preventing um, or kind of heading off uh, violence. Right, violence as it as it emerges. Is this a sort of and so this this Pete? Like, would you say this belongs to the before picture of your like uh, of your bullying dichotomy, your bullying inflection point? I think so, and I think part of it is is that. There's nobody in this album or really in this discourse who's bullied for any reason other than like their behavior or their sort of like there's there's no identity political bullying. Right. There's no there's no Matthew Shepard. Right. In 10. Right. There's no like kid who gets bullied because he's gay and gets killed. Right. Uh, There's nothing like that here. Um, and, and there's nothing like that. And like, I mean, this is also the sort of uh, I think of like the chocolate war and those books about boarding school bullying as being kind of foundational texts in this understanding of bullying, which, believe it or not, is progress right over the previous understanding of bullying, which was that it didn't really happen. Right. Like or that or that it was harmless. Right. That it was just fun. Right. So we, we go from this arc of it being sort of just harmless fun between boys jockeying for position. Oh, no, the guy kicked sand in your face. You buy the Charles Atlas elastic band, you know, dynamic tension system with the springs or whatever. So you can get big and you can beat up the bullies yourself. And that's fun. And now we're squarely in the idea where bullies are part of a real cycle of psycholo- of, of psychological damage and, and they cause problems and they're part of problems. But they're not a problem that has an external authority that could conceive stop them because they reflect our nature right um and then now we have this idea that that you can have an external authority that has a superior moral nature to the child bully that can enforce the child bully's behavior uh and so on and so forth and and it's sort of like they're all kind of different slices of the same uh different slices of the problem but this is squarely in the area of like like pearl jam the one thing that's grungiest about pearl jam is nobody is coming to save you right like that that's that's the thing right is that like the grungiest thing about pearl jam is, is that there isn't this external social order that's going to like either right any problems that you face or like reinforce sort of snickering and maliciously uh, any bad things that you wish would go away right like there's just the world 
Right. And there's the world and it's dirty and it doesn't line up nicely with your corresponding ideas of what it should do. And its idea of bullying is kind of in those in those veins as well. But yeah, I mean, yeah, I, th- I think yeah. I think it's that's sort of where it's located. So to, to draw a stark contrast with uh, from a few years earlier in the previous decade, right, a Motley Crue solution to this problem would be that uh, what uh, Jack Daniels and motorcycles and strippers are going to save you from these problems. Yeah, well, the idea is that you should just be the awesomest. Right. And then that's the solution. And yeah. Just be the awesomest. Why aren't you the awesomest? That's also the solution of a lot of hip hop. Right. Like, why don't you just drive a giant Cadillac? Why don't you just have a ton of money and a lot of great clothes? Right. And I mean, I, 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 just like, I, I did it. And so can you. Right. Well, right. Exactly. Yeah. That's like the conservative, uh, uh, you know, theory on poverty. Well, why don't they just get jobs? Why don't they just work harder, you know? It's also the sort of Beach Boy theory of self-actualization, right? Which is like this idea that if you if – because it's not just about it, but like – because when I say like when I compare Motley Crue and like – I don't want to say Chris Brown because he is a bad person. But when I compare like 3-6 Mafia, like any, any rapper who talks about like a really fancy lifestyle as being sort of self-actualizing – like Jay-Z talks about it a lot. Oh, I'm, I have an off-white Lexus. I roll down the street. I'm so much better off than I used to be. I'm really, really awesome so if you have problems you should get a lexus and then your problems will be solved or you should do what's necessary to get a lexus right and this is kind of like that idea of doing things uh and i don't want to associate it just with people who are uh who behave badly in some sort of social judgment way that might or might not be racially charged right it's also the the squeaky clean rock and roll guys are also doing the same thing by giddying up in their 409s right like uh which is not that different from don't want nothing but a good time Right. Uh, you're kind of out there having fun and enjoying yourself. And that's the solution to all of life's problems. Um, although that one has more interesting chord progressions to it than a lot of the Motley Crue stuff does, I suppose. So, the, so uh, I mean, this is uh, OK. So this is interesting. So this is a song that's a portrait of a failure of parenting, a failure of kind of peer interaction and a failure of social institutions as uh, as. Um, uh, represented by the recess lady, right? So when when they say Jeremy spoke in class today, right? Like, is this uh, what? How did he speak, right? And uh, why why did what he do uh, count count as speaking? Um, the uh right the the and is he being sort of made into a bit of a hero here right as sort of against the you know against maybe maybe kind of slightly sociopathically but but that's allowed in rock and roll music right like our one one thing i've said on this podcast before is that you can kind of create a typology of popular music by the kind of antisocial behavior it condones and even celebrates uh and this like this sort of this sort of violent outburst um ter- terrible though it is, is an act of apotheosis uh, for Jeremy, or at least that's the sort of resolution that yeah. that I'd like to put to you and to see uh, to see what you think about it. Hey, that King Jeremy the Wicked rules his world is what you're saying. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think that there's two things that are happening right with with uh, Jeremy spoke in class today, and the first one is that we're 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 looking at a, a snippet of an interaction between a teacher and a parent. Wherein the problem in the circumstance is attributed to Jeremy's like disobedience and and his sort of his not keeping in line, which is marked not in sort of a like we don't need no education, we don't need no thought control kind of situation, but more just like so completely out of touch with the reality of what's happening to this child, right? Like Jeremy spoke in class today, right? Be, Be like Jeremy, you know, Jeremy hates his family, and Jeremy's family is like. They're addicts or whatever. They're they're having sex with prostitutes or whatever it is. The terrible things that Jeremy family is doing, right? And Jeremy is like drawing pictures of murdering all his classmates, and there's blood everywhere. And the problem is that when I was trying to teach them about crossing the Delaware, he was talking, right? And like that, and that, and that is the positive heroic. That's like like the grunge band identifies with that. This idea of being punished for for speaking uh, in a way that is just is not just uh, insubordinate. So that's not it's not dichotomous like that. It's just so unrelated to the reality of existence for these people. 
Right. right for guys like like Eddie Vedder, the you know the gas station security guards. I sort bum. of thought of it. I thought of it slightly differently, like the the instance under which that line might be said. I thought it's like, uh, tell me what happened in school today. Uh, you know, little Billy. Well, Jeremy spoke in class today, which is remarkable <laughs> because he's usually very quiet. <laughs> <laughs> and, but then, of course, the other way in which he spoke was the report of of the gun, right? Like, and the gun in his mouth, right? He shot himself. And he spoke, he expressed that which was unexpressed. Right? Like Pearl, Pearl Jam, the 10 is an album with a lot of frustration in it. A lot of examples of frustration that gets channeled and acted out. Yeah, I mean, in the, various the, the word that I come back to again and again is is sort of adolescent, right? Because it doesn't have a, a sort of um, adult theory of relations between men and women. Uh, even if it's yeah, like one adult theory of relations between men and women is men hate women and women hate men and you know yeah the sort of battle of the sexes um yeah, bit, bit, bitches and hoes bitches ain't shit but hoes and tricks aka like you know she's my cherry pie right like that whole idea of, of the woman as the sexual possession or the enemy is also not present in this at all Right. Um, but anyway, continue. Sorry, I'm, I'm I'm jumping. I'm interrupting. No, it's 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 great. It's like we're uh, it's like we're ganging up together on Portugal, <laughs> on on the song lyrics, which represent poor uh, poor poor Jeremy. So um, let's let's talk about Alive uh, a little mm. bit. Another you know another sort of single. Um, I guess it's uh, I guess it's the. Um, I guess it was the first single from this, and it it uh, it predates Jeremy, but I don't remember it being um, I don't remember it being as big on MTV. All right, uh, so the first verse is actually autobiographical about Eddie Vedder, uh, where the reality of who his biological father was was kept from him, and he was uh, and he was told later um, after the man had died. Um, the second is a uh, is a scene of of incest, right? Uh, and right. the third is a or not a third. There's like a uh, it's not exactly a verse in the same because it doesn't have the same pattern. But there's a sort of bridge kind of thing, which is the is something wrong? She said, "Of course, of course, there is." That's uh, and that does anything sum up the entire grunge movement better than that one couplet said in all of its disdain? Right? Is something wrong? She said. Of course there is. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine literally every, but said by every grunge artist, right? Being like, you know, uh, it's just like, you know, oh, I've been trapped inside my heart-shaped box. Is something wrong? Of course there is. Right. Like the, yeah, exactly. The, the, the state of grunge nature is something being wrong, <laughs> yeah. you know, um, that like, uh, okay. So what, I mean, we talked about the sort of deeply Freudian, the deeply Freudian psychodramas on, on this record. Right. And, and though I think verse two is, is fictional, clearly creatively it's related for Eddie Vedder to this story of, uh, of his origins being, you know, being kept kept from him so the sort of uh, attempted seduction um of the son of the son by the mother uh i'm ready i'm ready for you uh uh says the mother with no regard to what the the son is ready for or not um the uh uh you know what what do you what do you feel like is the relation between these uh, uh between these these sort of different vignettes um that go on in in the song well let me take a first stab at it here um in that who's who's alive versus who is dead interesting right um okay so the real daddy was dying right um and so he is he is dead um but i'm still alive um who's i'm still alive right um it's it's two people it's the it's the son and the mother right i'm still alive i'm still here i'm still carrying on my my father's legacy um and and then uh which the the mother uh, uh, uh it, it sort of latches onto and then establishes a sexual relationship to right because the 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 son is still alive the original the, the the father uh who's gone is not there and so therefore she 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 transposes her her, her sexual desire onto the son um the mother is still alive as well too right and the alive takes on the here the meaning of like alive in in a sexual way yeah, wants, well, wants to be satisfied a lot uh, oh it, interesting i had never thought of that that's sort of that's that's really interesting to me like i'm still alive and i have needs 
<laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, I kind of just came up there on, on the flight. I don't think that's part necessarily the, the established interpretation of it, but hey, the author is dead and whatnot. Right, yeah. So, I, I, I think mean, there's, there's a lot of, this is a really overdetermined line of, of, of lyrics here. What do you think, Pete? Well, I, th- I just wanted to point out, this is a great example of the author being dead because nowadays, right, this is a song that when you listened to it and you didn't think about what it was saying uh, or because you couldn't understand the words a lot of the time or what was being alluded to, uh, it's, it's it's an uplifting song. It's an empowering song about about enduring adversity, right? Yeah, and, you uh, guys remember we had this in the marching band. We played this when the team was trying to come for behind. Yeah. And it's not, and like Pearl Jam has embraced that now, right? Like that's how they sing it and play it now, right? And, and I think Eddie Better has gone on record talking about how the meaning of the song for him, like he never really had a set notion in his mind of what the meaning was, not in the sense that he didn't write it with a meaning, and, but of, of course the act of critiquing is different from the act of writing. And he, you know, this sort of his understanding of the song has been developing. In my mind, when I look at it from the standpoint of the uh of, of the 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 incest story uh, for me i'm still alive becomes this minimal quality of the individual right and it's not that the thing that is notable about him being alive is that is the thing that makes him different from his dad uh right is that his dad is dead and he's still alive and and because he is alive that's why he has to do the thing that his dad used to do right he he, ha- he has to have sex with his mom here in this song because the dad had sex with the mom and the dad is dead and he's alive right um and there's an anger behind that because i think that there is somewhat of a recognition in the song that 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 his being alive involves unnecessary individuation that isn't taking place right like there's some sort of messed up attachment disorder situation here where where the, you know, very clearly like huge attachment disorder situation where where the son is is being subsumed into the identity of the father without even being aware of it and it all comes crashing down on him at one point and, and if the song turns it turns from this notion of the justification for why this is happening to like a bit of defiance uh, a little bit of defiance a very very small drop in an ocean of pain of defiance which is usually all that we're looking for when we're 14 or 15 years old right uh so uh i mean I, that, that's what i would say that it's that it's about what are the what are the salient cleavages so to speak <laughs> i want i want to um to offer a third interpretation of what i'm still alive means and it's it it hinges on the idea that you can read at least the first two verses uh, as being told by a third person omniscient narrator and not narrated in the first person by the son uh, who is learning about uh, his father's death or who is being seduced or attempted attempted to being seduced right like um, and it's it's the idea that I'm still alive is actually narrated by the kind of the spirit or avatar of the dead father and that I'm still alive is the a sort of cry from beyond the grave that the father is still alive in his son, right? That the spirit of the father is alive um, uh, in the son, and that like uh, uh, that the the sort of son is that a sort of target of the seduction. He's an object of desire because. Um, you know, because he looks like the father, because he's sort of against, uh, almost against his will, or with, um, uh, you know, with whatever, with, um, uh, uh, without knowing even who the father was, came to embody uh, something about, uh, uh, you know, something about his father by looking like him, by having, you know, I don't know, similar traits or, or capacities or, or, um, or whatever. Uh, the, 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 the the father's protesting, saying that no, no, I'm still I'm still alive. Yeah, or sort of try. Uh, yeah, exactly. I'm I, right. I'm still alive. It's a sort. It it is a sort of. It's a sort of highly fucked up dad rock, right? It's yeah, <laughs> <Because>, like <laughs> even because even beyond the grave, uh, you know, uh, dadness. Um, it's it's dadness without the dad bod, right? Uh, right. I mean, I guess that's like cutting against that interpretation, though, is what we were just reading into in, in the other songs, right? Which are very clearly from the adolescent point of view, and and uh, don't take into account like the 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 parents' point of view, like they are the other. Yeah, um, the parents are the bad other. Now, I, I, I like this though. I, I'm really I'm really digging into this, but it, it doesn't look like it it, it uh, it's compatible with the prevailing. Well, even flow is from a third person. 
right? Yeah, like, let's talk. You know? Let's talk about Evenflow a little bit. <laughs> Which is, of course, like the, the the back in the day, back before the internet, no one knew what the words to Evenflow were, even though they were written down in a piece of paper that came inside of the album. No, well, that's the no. thing. Like, do you remember? Do you remember that piece of paper that came inside? Right. Mm. Like, there was a couple things. One, it wasn't a booklet; it was a poster. It unfolded and was, you know, in uh, uh, eight pieces or ten pieces or something like that and it was you know four by two right so it was uh um i'll see if i can find a scan of one and put it in the show notes and it did not list all of the lyrics to the songs it listed (laughs) only like the money words Right. And and they were sort of drawn on. It was like a it was like a like a marginalia textbook doodling where there would be like a field of black and the and like certain certain words would be in in white. Like I remember not knowing what the lyrics to Porch were and Porch might be, you know, Porch might be uh, one of my favorite songs uh, from this album and is one of the more political uh, one of the more political songs and kind of gets in a sort of atmosphere of threat and uh, sort of impending violence that seems to run through a lot of this, um, a lot of this album. But even flow like uh, you know the first I, I can't remember it off the top of my head. I'd have to Google around for it. But like the the first line might just be encapsulated uh, in like freezing. And that was it, or concrete, and that was all you got for the first. Uh, it was all right, you got right, for right. the for the first line. Uh, but but like it it is told um, in it is told in the third person, and it has a very interesting representational system. So Pete, if you want to if you want to bring it up, I'm interested to hear what you what you uh, have to say about it. Oh, about even flow. Yeah. How it represents various things. Would, I mean, would you say? Um, would you say that your thoughts about it arrive uh, in the manner of butterflies? <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the cool things. So one of the funny things about Evenflow is that it's got a ballad in it, right? Like it has a ballad inside of it, and the ballad, like, which is like rests his head on a, a pillow of concrete. Right or how's it goes like re- freezing rests his head on a pillow made of concrete feeling maybe he'll see a better set of days faces that he sees they aren't that familiar right but but each line is just stretched by the interpretation right and and it, and the the way that it is all stretched out like the rhymes the rhymes are in the middle of the lines if you're looking at an actual kind of transcription of the text right uh, which and it's and it, it, it's it's just it it just feels like that um it, it, it even flow right it, there's a there's a i guess this would be you would you would impugn this as somewhat of a of a of a surface level representation right you want to say well the song's disorganized it's not disorganized right the song's the song's not disorganized it's this way on purpose um but uh in the sense that it's not it's not just disorganized to reflect disorganized thinking it, it extends and flows uh in ways that reflect the ideas that it's trying to get across um uh, gosh like uh, the the feeling, the praying, the reading, uh, the faces. Uh, it's 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 like there's not there's only very sparse details that ground the the framing of the event in the material world, right? Like there's only a few things that are actually real. Right from an outside observer, so the story is being told from the standpoint of an outside observer, and spare few of the nouns or adjectives in the song would be observable to somebody in the third person. Right, the pillow made of concrete, uh, faces. Right, so that now that I think about it, as you describe the lyric sheet, it, it almost as if the things that are in the lyric sheet map onto the actual things that a third person observer would be able to see about the experience of the homeless man that's being described in Evenflow, right? Uh, which I think is also kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, what what well, he'll begin his life away, and whispering hands will lead him away. Yeah, this. But, so, like, here's here's the thing, right? Like, I'm. Uh, I'm. This is a, a song that has a sort of um, uh, an incoherent metaphorical system, and that's uh, and that's I think important to the meaning of the song. Um, so, like, uh, w- whether it's a world of 
concrete or a world of butterflies, which is pastoral, right? Like uh, whispering hands actually is a really good is a really good example of this because hands don't whisper. You know, and so it's not, you know, it's not uh, uh, when you sort of mix metaphors like this, it, it, the, the, when you try to add it up, it doesn't, you can't sort of totalize the meaning of it um, in, uh, uh, in a single interpretation. It's, it's tension and it's ideas kind of played, it's kind of ideas played against each other. And the idea, I mean, the idea of the existence of the uh, of the the homeless man, and th- there's something a little uh, adolescent uh, about that, right? Like, like not like, oh, this is a person who I should whom I should help, right? Like, uh, or whom I should pity. Uh, it's like, yeah, this guy's life sucks, and so life sucks. You know, that is the is the sort of disposition of the speaker of this toward um uh toward the the homeless person who is who is depicted in the song right it's not it's not exactly compassion um it's it's a little more clinical or it's a little more uh uh self-centered um in that like wow yeah this guy's suffering is an opportunity for me to say something that's been on my mind for a while dad uh, <laughs> but they never say the thing. Yeah, exactly. I don't. I don't totally know what the message is. It's a statement of a problem and not a c- kind of coherent program for social change, right? Yeah, I'm missing the part where they talk about uh, rising housing prices and how uh, rent subsidies might actually be able to do something, you know, about about homelessness and income support. Housing, two thousand dollars for a little crappy one bedroom. Okay. Let's let's go through the middle of it a little bit beat by beat, right? So because because there's interesting you can you can compare the what is there a word for like a random word with an apostrophe instead of a G that precedes a line of yelling? Is there a word of that in in a poetry? I don't think so. So so I, I think the word is pearl jamming. Yeah, pearl jamming. Great. So we have kneeling, praying, feeling, and ceilings. Right. Well, well, that's kind of cool as a progression. Right. So he's kneeling and he's looking through the paper that he doesn't know how to read. OK, so so there's this Ooh, yeah. this guy. Yeah. Right. And then he's praying. So is he is, does he go from kneeling to praying or is he kneeling and praying? Is he praying because he is kneeling? Right. Is praying to something that has never shown him anything similar? Is that the same thing as kneeling and looking through the paper that he doesn't know how to read? Is the thing that never showed him anything a God that he's praying to? Or is it the producer of the newspaper who is as unknown to him as a God would be to somebody else? Right. Uh, in that in that sense. Right. It's a. Uh, and then there's this weird kind of uh, understanding the weather of the winters on its way to me says, OK, we've set up this idea of this wilderness prophet who has a holy book that has mysteries in it. But no, he operates through this shamanism of understanding the elements. Right. He he he, he appeals to sort of the Wiccan all father. He's a druid. Right. Uh, and ceilings few and far between the legal halls of shame. So so when you're talking about praying and kneeling and ceilings, to me that thinks about cathedrals, right? Sistine Chapel, kind of things like that, Gothic cathedrals. And then the legal halls of shame, meaning he's in a place where he's not being condemned by any of the social institutions that presumably would be trying to help him by their state admissions or put him in jail for doing things illegally, right? This idea that, that by being in this reverie that is probably caused by persistent mental illness, he's also being being uh, venerated, right, by the, the freedom from condemnation, but he's also participating in a holy act for a religion that he doesn't understand in something of a cruel joke from people who are playing God with printing presses, right? Like, there's, like, so much going on here that's all loaded into it, and when I read it, what I, what I feel is not this idea of protest necessarily against the people printing newspapers as much as an effort to try to find something in, in this compelling image that that i identify with personally about regarding my own life right i'm being like let's start from the assumption that this person who's probably schizophrenic based on the fact that he hears voices and all this other stuff uh that 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 i i want to try to appreciate him as a person and as a peer to myself because that's the value that that's the that is the premise that this song rests on which is that we care about people like this just like spoon man 
right? Like, we care about the Spoon Man. He's not just some guy playing spoons, right? He's the focus of the song. He's somebody that we care about. That's actually, that's actually, that's actually worth saying about grunge, that almost all the time in grunge songs, the subject of the song is, is somebody important, Right. It's somebody who matters, even if the song is just bashing them and being cruel to them or denigrating them. And there I mean to say denigrate the, the, the song by putting the person in the center of the song venerates and, and respects and says that this person is important, uh, which is not the case with all musics. Right. Like uh, Wangsta by 50 Cent, for example, does not venerate the Wangsta, even as it sort of like puts the Wangsta in the center of the wanking that is taking place. Right. Like but even flow does. Right. Uh, Jeremy does. Right. Uh, hmm. Alive does to an extent. I don't know. Yeah, it, it's, it's slightly different. I, I don't disagree that this is about being angry at an authority figure, but not proposing any solutions. I mean, this is a pre fight club album. Right. We're, 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 we're still moving towards articulating the problem. Right. Like we have not yet articulated the problem. And it is very premature to uh, suggest solutions to it as if we were prior to this First World War and still believed in sort of celestial progress. Right. right? Like, well, hey, once we figure out why all the teenagers are angry, then we can get down to business. Right. And we can sort things out and start fixing the capitalist system that makes them angry. Right. Like all that, all that okay. kind of thing. All right. So thematically the lyrics right we established that there's anger here but there's also this acknowledgement of the importance of uh various uh, subaltern figures like the homeless and the, the kid who's bullied and things like that right um and i'm trying to square that with uh against the music itself which in other contexts does a very different thing which i think in the basically in the previous decade uh, this type of metal and riff-driven music is often in the service of basically saying, I am awesome and I am powerful. But, right? Yeah. Um, with, you yeah. Know, the, uh, the, the riffs of the ding-a-ding-a-ding-a-ding-a-ding or the right? Those are the, the main riff you have in here. And then the, the ripping guitar solos that uh, permeate not just this song, but most of the rest of the songs yeah. on, on this as well, right? Uh, there's this interesting, it's creating an interesting tension for me, and again, I've talked a lot on whenever I appear on the TFT podcast about how guitars and guitar solos and big guitar playing is is very much about self-actualization, about power, about um, a celebration of the self. There's a sexual thing going on as well, too, with the with the, the guitar as a as a phallus, basically, and like, you know, and that being the extension of, of manhood. Um and so I, I'm I, I'm putting that out there as I'm saying that I'm not quite sure how all of that how we can reconcile these uh, not really incompatible things, but uh, uh, ideas that are coming at uh, that are they're going in very different directions. What do you guys think? Yeah, I mean, I think I feel I have a, I feel pretty strongly that this is like the heart of what's interesting about this album as much as anything else, which is the way it was made. Right. Is that this is this is the album of the four handed monster, as Rolling Stone called them, right? Which refers to what Mike McCready and Stone Gossard, although you don't you want to keep Jeff Ament in the conversation with his 12 string bass, which is used in this album, right? Which is great, <laughs> which is totally great. Which, by the way, I used to think that meant that he had 12 strings that just sort of went across on either two necks or a really thick neck. No, no, no. It's 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 actually four bundles of three strings. I did not know how that worked, uh, nor did I know that pianos do the same thing. But but this idea that the 10 starts as uh, two uh, stringed instrument players uh, who are who have already done the whole I'm in a Seattle band and my lead singer died of drug abuse. That's something that's already happened to me. And now I am looking to sort of punch my meal ticket. Right. Like at least that's that's kind of what uh, what Jeff Ament is thinking, because he's from the boonies in Montana. Right. Like super poor. Right. Like uh, well, yeah, super duper poor, but pretty poor. Tiny, tiny town in Montana. Uh, you know, the other his peers are all their parents are paying for their music lifestyles and he's working. He's washing dishes. Right. And he's like, I'd like to get have my rent paid and they're not like cap they're not like corporate rock but it's like this is a project that is aiming for a certain sort of stability and success that's been denied by the collapse of the previous artistic projects those the collapse of which is commemorated by temple of the dog right which is the commemoration of the death of uh chris cornell's old roommate who was the leader the wood guy anyway the point being you know, you have Stone Gossard. This is like if you were a rhythm guitarist and wanted to make an album that just totally freaking glorified what rhythm guitarists guitarists think is important. Like this is pretty much as good as it gets. 
right? Uh, in terms of like, this is a, an album where the songs are driven largely by, yes, by the riffs and by the solos too, but by the rhythm guitar and the sort of lyrical lines of the rhythm and backup guitar, uh, and particularly how they change and shift because this is an album with a ton of repetition, but it's all it's a lot of variation. Like I wanted to talk about this a little bit when we did a live, but we ran out of time. But every time he says I'm still alive, it feels a little bit different. And part of that is because like the guitar riffs throughout the album are always kind of changing a little bit, right? Like mm-hmm. like this is yeah. if you listen to this and Nevermind next to each other, it's like wow, Nevermind repeats the guitar line a lot. Like a lot. Whereas this album is like constantly changing the quality of the riff, right? And and the and the backup guitar and the rhythm that's in the guitars. And and the and the words just come after, right? The words and the meaning and the syntax, it's all in service to to the riffs and the composition in a lot of these songs. All right. And then that that is also if you want to connect it to the ethos of the album, it's an album in which I am not the center of the world, right? But my perspective and my understanding is the only way in which the world through which the world can be comprehended right i mean if you want it, that that's that's one that conflict between a sort a sort of adolescent narcissism but but a sort of understanding of of an altruistic notion of how the world ought to be as in like the world is for other people the world is not for me the world is for other people versus well i don't know any other way to understand the world but through myself like that also connects to like Freudian psychodrama and attachment disorder and not having boundaries with people, right? Being like, well, you know who matters? The homeless guy under the bridge matters, not me, right? Because because like, is there is there is there are there any songs? I think Oceans, right, is the song on the album that's about that's like conceivably sung by somebody who could be a rock band person. Right. Like like every other song is transposed into some other extreme external relationship. And I think that formally the relationship of the lyrics to the rhythm guitar is is is, it reflects that and and it it reinforces that. Right. And this idea that that the rhythm is the rhythm of the world as well as the rhythm of the heart. Right. Uh, And the rhythm of the self and the rhythm of the blood coursing through the the veins. Right. Uh, Is is also is the rhythm. And it's not you, the singer. Right. Because that's the difference is that in other in other bands, other big rock bands, the lead singer has a lot of say as to what the riffs do. Right. Conceivably, one would think that Axl Rose, I mean, yeah, Slash is a fairly independent guy, but you would imagine that Axl Rose would be like, okay, you know, great riff. I'm making this about me. And Eddie Vedder doesn't really do that. Not in this album. He's not really he he, he makes he he performs himself, but he doesn't subvert the guitars to his own purposes. Mm. Well, I think I'm about to subvert this podcast uh, and say thank you very much to uh, the dynamic duo of Peter Fenzel and Mark Lee. Uh, the, uh, the, we make up the normal trifecta on the Overthinking It podcast for joining uh, on the TFT podcast to talk about this uh, seminal album, another great album of 1991, a year where there are, uh, is certainly an embarrassment of riches. If you would like to talk about Pearl Jam's 10, uh, anything that we've talked about, the best place to do is probably probably on the in the comments for the show notes on on this episode go to overthinkingit.com do the uh, uh click the the title of this uh theory for turntables podcast you will see the show notes there and you can leave a comment down there at the bottom we're also on twitter at tft podcast and we are on facebook we're theory for turntables there follow us uh in all the places uh and thanks very much for listening we'll be back next week with more theory for turntables until then keep it real <laughs>